Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Now, this morning our text is Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 35. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. The Apostle Paul writes, Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a very short passage from Romans. And I want to remind us what it was that he said right before this in the letter. So I'm just backing up a couple sentences. This is what he just got done saying. In verse 35, he said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then this list. Tribulation are enemies that are tormenting us from outside ourselves. Distress is an enemy that torments us from inside ourselves. Persecution is an enemy that pursues us to do us wrong. Famine is an enemy that denies us the essential things that our physical life needs. Nakedness is an enemy that strips us of all our clothing and reducing us to utter shame. Peril is an enemy that puts us in grave danger, and we tremble with fear in that danger. And sword is the final enemy. Sword brings all the torment to an end by execution, all right? The final death, the final enemy is death. So again then, the Apostle Paul asks these two questions. Listen to them. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, what is the answer to the question? Well, here he goes off on a tangent. Here he goes off on a parenthetical statement and aside. This is what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul, like any good teacher or preacher, lives in the brains of the people that he's talking to. He knows their thoughts. He knows what's going on. And so he'll stop and he'll say, before I answer the question, I want to remind you of something. And that's essentially what he's doing here. He stops before answering the question. And he says this. He says, just as it is written. Now, uh, let's stop right there. He has a parenthetical statement, an aside, an explanation he wants to give. And at that moment, he cites an authority. That's what he's doing, just as it is written. Now, what's the authority he's citing? He's citing Scripture. He's citing the Old Testament. And so he wants us to know that he's about to quote from the Old Testament. And the way he says that is, just as it is written. Now, first notice the word just. You could say exactly as it is written. Precisely as it is written. Just as it is written. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is giving us an indication that it's very important that he quotes it accurately. Right? 
just as it is written. That's the point of saying just, and every word of Scripture is inspired, right? Just as it is written. I told the first congregation that it's very helpful to have a man that I love and respect in this congregation who denies the inerrancy of Scripture. Because every time I come to an internal testimony to the inerrancy of Scripture, I stop and I say, here's something helpful to him. And instead of just passing over it, because Scripture says it is written all the time, I fixate on it because I'm hoping one of these days he will repent. Because wrong doctrine is sin, right? I love him. I respect him. But here we are at another place where he's wrong, and Scripture itself says he's wrong, just as it is written. Now, where is that phrase used in the New Testament? It was used constantly in the New Testament. Why is that phrase used in the New Testament? Well, because the New Testament is citing the authority of God. In Scripture, when it is written, Scripture says, God says, it says. All these things are the same statement, and all of them are claiming that God inspired the Word of God. In other words, every time these things are said, what's being said is God says. So that uh, B.B. Warfield, the Princeton theologian, has an essay called, It Says, Scripture Says, God Says. The whole purpose of the essay is to say that to say it says is the same as saying Scripture says is the same as saying God says. And so when it says it is written, it's saying God has said. Just as God said, just as God's words say, just as God says. And this is very important. Now, how do we know it's important? Well, we know it's important because Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, said what? Every single time Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus said, it is written. One of the times you know, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ain't that interesting? <laughs> you know, Satan offers him bread. He says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from God. Huh, huh, what are those words that come from God? Well, just as it says. <laughs> In other words, this is a self-perpetuating perpetual motion machine. It's internal testimony about itself, and it repeats it again and again and again and again. And here where Jesus is tempted, Jesus responds to the temptation. He resists it from Satan, the temptation, by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What words proceed from the mouth of God? I wonder. Well, you realize that if you deny the inspiration of Scripture... You don't believe those words proceed from God, right? Right? So when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you're left wondering, where are those words that proceed from the mouth of God that are more important than bread? Right? Are they Shakespeare? 
Are they the U.S. Constitution or the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence? Are they Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore? Where are the words? And you see, the sophisticate, the intellectual says, well, our internal witness, our internal sense of things will tell us when we see it, hear those words and read them. And of course, then you say, well, might they be in the Bible? And then the sophisticate will say, well, yes, actually a lot of scripture is inspired, but not all scripture is inspired. And immediately you're left judging the words of God, right? You know, which is of course the whole point so that you can get out from under that nasty creation account of days, you know? I mean, there's always a bottom line of some place where you want to say that God didn't inspire that. Okay, so here the Apostle Paul is dealing with Romans, with Christians in Rome. And what is he dealing with them about? He's dealing with them about, we listed, we listed the words, the words are, they're, being, they're going through tribulation, they're going through distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sore. They're suffering. And he's trying to reassure them. And he's saying, will these things separate them from the love of Christ? And before he answers, he says, just as Scripture says. Well, what does he say Scripture says? He says this, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered for your sake. Now, who is your? Well, we go to where this is actually written, and this is a direct quote from Psalm 44, okay? And in Psalm 44, we read this. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. Recognize this? We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so in Psalm 44, there is a, uh, uh, a complaint, uh, 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 a bitter complaint of the people of God. It's written by Asaph. And it's a bitter complaint about how God's abandoned them to their suffering. And in that Psalm, Asaph under the inspiration of God, in verse 22 says, but for your sake we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now there's no question at all in Psalm 44 who your is when he says, but for your sake. It's because of God. And so all the complaints he gives are complaints that are because of God, for God's sake. All right? For your sake, I went to the grocery store. You asked me, I went to the grocery store, I had an accident, you know, I got coronavirus at the gro I did it for your sake. And so here he's saying all these things that we're suffering, and what is that suffering like according to the psalmist? Well, it's the same suffering of the Romans, and this is the description. We are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now what is it to be put to death all day long? Well, it is not to be killed every day. That's completely different. This is where constantly during the day you're dying. 
I'm dying. You know how people will say that as an explanation of how they're suffering. I'm dying. But the dying goes on all day. Not just every day, all day. So all day, they're dying. And then it says, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, sheep that are going to be slaughtered are considered, in other words, the people slaughtering them look at them and think what? Well, do people that slaughter sheep feel remorse? Do they feel regret? Are they precious about it? Do they look at the sheep and say, oh, that's such a cute little sheepy, sheepy sheep? No. The sheep to them is dead meat. It's like roadkill. Now you say, well, how on earth could anybody feel about sheep that way? And I say, well, if you're a butcher, that's how you feel about sheep. Sheep about to be slaughtered are not the subject of regret or remorse by the one slaughtering them. And so that's how the world looks at Christians. It kills them all day, and it's not remorseful, it's not regretful, it doesn't have any tenderness towards us. Okay? This is what Scripture says. Listen, Jesus said he came to bring a sword. Jesus didn't come with a feather. And he didn't come with cotton candy. And he didn't come with a Buddhist prayer wheel. And he didn't come with rainbow banners. Jesus is God, and he came with a sword. And we all know what a sword does. A sword divides. All right? And so immediately when I'm saying this, because we're all Americans living in 2020, we're like, oh, please, get off it. I do not want to be thinking about division. This pastor obviously is just interested in furthering the culture wars, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, no, actually not. I grew up going, I, you know, I, when I hitchhiked, got, I got rides. Peace, brother. Peace, brother. Hey, peace, peace. And they'd open the door and I'd get in. We'd all smoke a joint, you know. And, and the world lived as one, imagine. No, this isn't about the culture war. This is about you as a Christian who are vulnerable and weak and tender, understanding that this has always been the lot of Christians. God intends it. He came with a sword. And then he defines the sword in ways that we can't escape. He says that he has come so that you will hate your father and mother and your brother and sister and your husband and wife and love him. And so we know that Jesus intentionally says the divorce the, the sword that he came bringing will divide our families. Do you hear me? No faithless, self 
abuse from you. Do you understand me? You may not live your life refusing to interpret the divisions you have with your family members without Jesus. Do you understand me? And you say, but, you know, the family members I'm divided from are Christians and they belong to such and such a church. I don't give a rip. I don't care what church they belong to. The people that killed Jesus were members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I mean, I'm, I'm on video camera, so please, I don't really mean the OPC. I'm saying they were the right-thinking, right-believing, right-confessing, perfect Jews. So the Orthodox Presbyterian Jews. And so why do you think you're going to escape the sword of Jesus dividing you from your family? You can't. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in the midst of the description of all the suffering of Christians, he stops and he says, just as it is written. And then he talks, quoting Psalm 44, that it is always the lot of Christians to suffer for the sake of God. There is no way for us to worship God and to love him without suffering. And I mean, if there's a theme of Jesus, it's clear, it's that one. He says it over and over again. Why is it that suffering in this life scandalizes us? Why is it that we always want to think that it was for our sake that we suffered all day long, that we died all day long? Why do we always want to take the blame on ourselves and not share it with Jesus? Why do we deny the activity of Jesus in our own suffering? Why are we so faithless? Do we really think that we ourselves, in the Spirit of God, are incapable of offending the world? Do we really think the world, having no Spirit of God dwelling in them, is incapable of hating God's sons and daughters with a perfect hatred? Do we really think that unredeemed man is incapable of killing Christians all day long and feeling not the slightest remorse about it? I mean, honestly, think about you and your life. You. Where are you suffering, dying all day long, and where are you looked at by those who don't belong to God as sheep to be slaughtered, as roadkill, as dead meat? It was very helpful for me to read Calvin on this. Calvin says this. He says, It sometimes happens that believers seem to have been overcome and to be bowed down in utter weakness. So greatly does the Lord not only harass, but also humiliate them. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that being published by any evangelical publisher today? Believers are so laid down. It's like we're on our knees. Why? Well, because God is harassing and humiliating us. 
I mean, think about that. You know, is that how you think of your life? That from his love, God is harassing and humiliating you. You know, they write all these books about marriage and how marriage is God's school of sanctification. You know, right? You know, you've heard about it, you know, it's sanctifying. You know, the husband sanctifies the wife. You know? Yeah, that's true. Your wife is God's instrument of harassment and humiliation. Now, how does that sit? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. There is absolutely no way to be a Christian without God showing his love to us in a ton of different ways that are very difficult to live with, okay? And you must live with the suffering and humiliation of your life, Josiah, by faith, you have to see every one of these things as a gift from God that will make you conform to his image. Jesus didn't escape it, neither will you. Now, having made the aside, having stopped to remind you of that, then the apostle Paul says, but, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, right? And overwhelmingly conquer is an intensification of conquer that's very weird in the original. It's like, we like, we like victorious, victor, victorious, conquer, win, you know? In other words, there is absolutely no way that there's going to be anything but total, total victory. And it will come through the very thing you suffer, okay? And so when you're little and you get spanked and you have your mother tell you what to do and your dad tell you what to do and then Pastor Bailey tells you what to do and talks to you in the middle of a sermon and you know, it's humiliating. It's like, would he bug off? Why is he looking at me? I'm just sitting here doing nothing, just minding my own business. Now Pastor Bailey's looking at me and talking to me. Be thankful. God's making you into a man of God, and you'll suffer as he does it. Okay? 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 Yeah, I'd be looking at you, and I'd be asking you, okay? Is that okay with you if God? Okay. He says, okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the suffering that we have. We thank you that it was true of Old Testament believers, New Testament believers. We thank you it was true of our Lord. We pray that you will make us willing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.